Well, it is good to be back with you all this morning. We missed you last week, but we're blessed by our time in Kentucky, and I hope we were a blessing to them. It is sweet to be back with the Frack family this morning. Um, just a reminder, guys, that, yeah, we get an extra hour next week to get here on time without our wife's help if they're at the retreat, so let's, let's do this together. But uh, also, we're going to have donuts after the service, so... Yeah, so um, ladies, you'll enjoy your retreat, and guys, we'll have some donuts, all right? Um, also, these, these thank you cost cards, or COS, I'm new here, I don't know how to say it. Uh, I love these. The commands in, scriptures, in the scripture about giving thanks are always just that, to give thanks, and not to feel thankful, and that's a big difference. <laughs> at least in my own heart, you can always give thanks for things. I don't always feel very thankful. And so these are going to be an opportunity for us to express our gratitude for God's common grace and just the gifts around us and the people that he's placed in our lives. So I hope you'll take advantage of that. But also in November, we're going to be discussing gratitude in the conversations, things you're thankful for about God, about the goodness that he's displayed to you in life and your neighbors and your friends and your activities. And so I want you to be thinking about just gratitude, what you're thankful for, and give thanks. And you know, I think you'll find that as you give thanks, it actually cultivates the feelings of thankfulness. Something I'm thankful for is pastors in my own life. And uh, I, haven't, I haven't given anyone a heads up on this, but October is Pastor Appreciation Month. And I've felt nothing but appreciated since I've come here. And I'm very grateful for the appreciation you've shown to us in our very short time. But as you know, and this is important, pastor, the word pastor is synonymous in the New Testament with elder or overseer. And before I got here, you had some faithful elders who were pastoring your souls for a long time. And so I want to publicly express my appreciation to them, the four of them, this morning. Um, Dave, Chris, Chris, have you made it yet? There he is. Uh, Brandon, Bob, thank you, brothers, for shepherding this flock in my absence. <laughs> Not that you needed me, but I'm very grateful to be here now. So I hope you'll express your appreciation and gratitude to those four men as well, because they're so faithful. So as we consider that, open, open your Bibles, though, and very grateful to God for his word. To Mark chapter 2. And I want to think about this morning, just as we open up the word of God together, why do we gather on Sunday? What's the motivation for you to gather here on a Sunday morning? Um, maybe you feel like you're supposed to, and if you don't, it's a sin. I'm, not just, I'm just posing things. I'm not making statements here. Or maybe you say, actually, the reason I gather is because it restores my soul. When I come here, the risen Lord is present with his people. I hunger to worship the Lord. I hunger to hear his word. I hunger to pray with one another. Or as Ryan pointed out, I hunger to um, encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to one another. You can often come on a Sunday rooted in maybe fear or guilt that you're supposed to be here. This is what you're supposed to do. 
Or you can come with this desire for restoration, for encouragement, for encountering the risen Lord. And the issue of what you're supposed to do on a Sunday and why you do it is an issue that's been long debated, long misunderstood, sometimes very strangely applied. And sometimes people feel a lot of false guilt around things that they should or shouldn't do on a Sunday. And it revolves around the issue at hand in our text this morning, the Sabbath and how we understand the Sabbath. I once knew a man, this is a bit odd, but I knew a man who did not believe you should eat at a restaurant on a Sunday because you were causing other people to work on a Sabbath. And so his wife would head home after Sunday school so that she could prepare a big meal for the family, which caused her to miss the Sunday worship. But in his mind, he was honoring the Sabbath. So it felt like there was something off there. You can, you know, you can purchase ovens right now with a Sabbath mode. Do you know this? So in Exodus 35, there's a kindling of fire on the Sabbath is forbidden. And so you can actually purchase an oven that will shut off the feature that shuts off an oven for running too long. You can have an oven that has a Sabbath mode and it'll allow the oven to run continually. So you can start cooking, warm it up the day before, and it'll warm all day so you don't have to worry about rekindling a fire on the Sabbath. All of this is rooted in deep concern about violating God's law, about offending God, about doing exactly what God intended. And in many ways, all of those are noble ends, but if we misunderstand the intent of God's laws for what we do on days of the week, we're gonna to fail to live lives that honor him. If we fail to understand our, God's, our Lord's posture towards his people as they've received his law, we're gonna misunderstand how we are to live in light of him, in light of his goodness towards us, in light of his law in our lives, in light of his grace. And so Jesus is flipping the script, as Brandon pointed out. Good word last week, Brandon. Jesus is flipping the script here in this early Galilean ministry of his in the book of Mark. And he's, like Brandon pointed out last week, he's calling sinners to himself and that we don't have to add to the what Jesus has done. We simply come to him as he calls and he's ushering in something new and we don't wanna take old wine and put it in new wineskins. We don't wanna bring our old ideas or the old law into this new covenant that Christ was bringing in. Brandon issued a healthy warning about adding to what Jesus has done. And this morning in this text, we're seeing issues around the Sabbath and the way we are to relate to it as we relate to Jesus. It's a big, big deal. And I want us to see this morning from this text that Jesus' view of us, his people, primarily, are out of the gate. Because he, he comes to defend his disciples right out of the gate. And that should comfort you. And then we'll look at the law and its true intent that Jesus reveals. And then I want us to rest. Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest. I want us to find rest in Jesus himself. In Jesus himself. So let's look at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 36. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did 
when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. So the big problem that crops up here is actually an accusation against the disciples. That they were violating the Sabbath. Verse 24 there in chapter 2, the Pharisees say, what are they doing? Why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And so let's take a minute to reflect on the Sabbath briefly. It's the fourth commandment, the longest of the ten. In Exodus chapter 20, God commands his people after he's delivered them, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God's people were called to work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. This was something fundamental that he laid down upon the people because he was a God who worked. And actually, I've been reading Bob's book, By a Cabin, on the theology and practice of rest. And he has a helpful dis description of work. It's this activities that provide for your needs, your family's needs, and the needs of others. It's very basic work. It provides for your needs, family's needs, and the needs of others. And why then did God establish this with the Jews, that he wanted them to work six days and rest on the seventh? Well, because that's what God did in the creation. He worked for six days, creating, and then on the seventh day, it says he rested and he was refreshed. And so in this divine pattern, he wanted them to do the same. So from sunset on Saturday to sunset on Sunday, they were to rest. It was a symbol of his covenant with him. These were his special people. No other nation had this, this Sabbath. And it would have been a very loud symbol. Chick-fil-A, when you drive down Garden of the Gods, it's closed this morning, right? Every day it's closed on Sundays. Have you ever been to a food court in a mall? I don't even know if those still exist. But if they do, I used to work at one when I was in seminary. And I tried to stay away from the mall at all costs, but every now and then you'd be in there on a Sunday and that Chick-fil-A door, just the whole storefront's dark and hustle and bustle is going on all around, right? And it's dark. 
and yet they outsell all the other stores. It's a loud statement that a nation like Israel would take one day a week and not work when the, every other nation around them worked constantly seven days a week. And then that would be like God proving that this is my people, but then them also saying, hey, the God who created in six days and rested on the seventh is our God. He's the one true God. This would have stood out among other nations. It stands out when we see it even today. And God wanted them to show this so that it would display that he had set them apart for himself. For himself. And we don't have time to delve deeply into the Sabbath, but it was vital to obey this commandment because disobeying this command not to work on the Sabbath was equal to breaking the covenant and the consequence was death. And so, because the penalty was so severe, they created a lot of regulations, a lot of stipulations to kind of build a barrier between actually breaking the Sabbath and what you should be doing regularly. Like, so there were commands, it's wrong to kindle a fire, gather fuel, carry burdens, transact business, but there was uncertainty about how much exactly of that is right or wrong and what's considered work and how, like how close do you have to get and then the death penalties enacted. There, there were a lot of questions and uncertainties. So they would build in a lot of religious laws and rules around obeying the Sabbath. It'd kind of be like saying, you know, you're on a, a hike and there's a deep, steep cliff and you tell your kids, don't fall off the cliff. And then over a while you realize that's not sufficient. So you start saying things like, well, actually, why don't you just stay a little further away? Why don't you stay over here on the left side of the trail? Because, you know, everybody wants to kind of see, I guess maybe mine just do. But anyway, you, you build in extra rules to help maintain the main rule, which is don't fall off the cliff, right? And these regulations got to be incredibly extensive and specific where they began to forbid about 39 things specifically. But just generally speaking, the world that the Jews lived in was on, on a Sabbath. The only things that were allowed were things that could save a life. So if you dislocated your finger, it's not life endangering, wait till dark to set it. That was a rule. There was a rule, if a building collapsed, you could remove enough rubble to see if anyone was alive. If they were alive, you could help them. If they were dead, you needed to leave them till dark, till sunset. And I, you know, I used to be pretty harsh on the Pharisees about this. But I think we owe them some grace. In a lot of ways, they were just trying to avoid the death penalty. <laughs> and I don't blame them for that. So the Pharisees then see Jesus and his disciples on a Sabbath, walking through a field, reaching down, gathering grain, rubbing it in their hands, and consuming it. And by their expectation or their perception, they would have been harvesting and winnowing grain, which was work. And perhaps journeying, walking so far, they had built in about 800 meters, roughly, was about what they said was allowed to journey. If beyond that, it was too far on a Sabbath. And so the accusation comes in that kind of context, on that kind of 
those kind of religious expectations on a Sabbath. And notice they say, the Pharisees, look, why are they, this is in verse 24, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So they, they attacked the disciples, and Jesus could have done a lot of things here. He could have said, hey, look, we're not putting in a sickle to the grain. We're not harvesting this in any official capacity to work to earn a living. You guys are over, over scrutinizing this. We're not technically harvesting. And, and besides, the law allows us to harvest the edges of grain fields. That's, a, that's permissible anyway. Jesus could have kind of nuanced and argued with them inside and out of the Mosaic law, but that's not what he does. He could have started just with his authority over the law. He could have said, hey, look, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I invented it. I get to tell you what happens on it. He could have gone there too. He could have pointed out their obsession over added religious rules that they adhere to so closely to the point of disregarding life, which is what he'll do in the next section. But instead, he just reminds them of an event. He brings up an event from the Old Testament. And before we jump into it, again, my desire in the last few years has really got to be to get to know Jesus, the man, who he is. But I want you to see his view of the people. So in this Sabbath debate, what you see first is that Jesus defends his people. So his posture towards his disciples, they're accused. And what does Jesus do? He steps in. He steps in on their behalf. He's the first to speak up when others condemn. So you had that guy probably in your group who's going to step forward at first it's going to take the blow if there's an attack or if there's a, somebody's picking a fight or something maybe in your high school, college groups. There was always that one guy that would step in first. Well, Jesus does too in a sinless way. <laughs> he steps in for his disciples. It's not this impulsive, snappy, sinful defense, but he does step in and reason carefully on our behalf. So the Pharisees say, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Now... Put yourself there. You're getting accused by somebody for breaking the law. And I, what would you have done? I, I, I might have said, I, I thought this was legal. It's just a little grain. Doesn't Moses allow for this? Like, was this all right, right? Or I, Peter, what would Peter have done? Like, lay off me. I'm starving. <laughs> you know, I don't know. James and John, the sons of thunder. Like, you think we're reaping now? Like, you know, I don't know. Judas probably like dropped his grain, dusted off his hands. It was like, it's not me. Those guys, I didn't do it. All of them. We're all prone to get defensive. But Jesus just says, have you not read the Bible? Have you never read? And he reasons with them from his word, slowly, carefully, in defense of his people. Jesus' posture towards you is one of defending you. The Old Testament is full of imagery of the Lord as a warrior, sending his angel to camp around his people. He's a refuge, right? a place to run and hide in in trouble. He's a sun and a shield, a bright heat that wards off the enemy and a shield that protects us from assaults. Jesus defends his people. He disciplines us when we sin. 
He has no hesitation pointing out our sin. But he also, in discipline, is defending you. He's protecting you from the devastating, destructive effects of sin. So think about your current struggles, your feelings of guilt, your feelings of shame. Think about the sins you fight and you commit and you feel sorrowful over. And remember that Jesus' posture towards you is one of defense. He's for you, not against you. He took the penalty so you no longer stand condemned. He's greater than your heart when your heart condemns you. He actively steps in on your behalf and defends you with his word. So when your heart gets defensive about something, before you just lash out and seek to get your own way or make it right, Remember, the Lord stands ready to defend you. Leave room for the vengeance of the Lord. Leave room for his activity. Seek his word. Let let him have the final say. How does Jesus reason on your behalf from his word? He uses his word, the sword of the spirit, to silence all of our adversaries. This is how Jesus steps in to defend you, his people, to who he is. And the way he does this here is by clarifying the intent of the law. So there, the Pharisees bring up this accusation against Jesus, and Jesus defends them, and he defends them then by clarifying the intention of the law, which was being misunderstood. So this accusation against the disciples and Jesus that they were harvesting and winnowing may have technically stuck, may have technically stuck in their day, but that's not what Jesus engages here. The Pharisees are obsessed with external rules surrounding the Sabbath laws. They're consumed with washings and fastings and peculiarities and dress, outward displays, not inward holiness. They're more devoted to external show rather than just devotion to the Lord and genuine concern for for life. So Jesus clarifies the intent of the law by pointing out a precedent set by King David. Look at verses 25 through 27. There's a precedent here set by King David. He said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So David and his men in this context were running from King Saul. This is 1 Samuel 21. Saul knew David's this anointed king who's coming. And if David reigns, then Saul's rule is going to effectively end. And so Saul's trying to kill David. David and his men are fleeing. They're running. They're exhausted. They enter into the tabernacle and they say, is there anything here for us to eat? And all there was there was the holy bread. The holy bread was placed up there every Sabbath. It's 12 loaves. And it was intended for the priests to eat, no one else. But David ate it. And David was not condemned for it. Jesus even says, David did what was unlawful. And so the Pharisees now are being backed into a corner. That's a hard reality. They love David. They wanted to claim David. They would have said, David did no wrong, except in the matter of Uriah, they would have argued. But Jesus is saying, no, he did what was unlawful here. 
And why did, his, why did David come out innocent in the matter? Well, because his life was in danger. And so Jesus is drawing out compassion for life is a better guide for Sabbath behavior than religious scruples. Compassion for life and good is more important than all of the religious scruples that the Pharisees had built up. The law was meant to confirm human life. And Jesus uses David's actions as a precedent then for his own. In Matthew 12, when Matthew cites the same story, Jesus says, I desire, he quotes God, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So though David and the disciples maybe had violated the law as written, there was a higher value in God's estimation, a desiring a heart and devotion to God, which displays mercy for the life in need around him, seeking the good of others more than outward religious appearance. And so the clarifying the intent in verse 27, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was meant to be a gift to man. Man was not meant to exist in service of the Sabbath. And this is the reality that the Sabbath day was never intended to prevent anyone from doing good. It was never intended to present, prevent you from showing mercy or showing grace, which reflects the very character of God. Every law of God, every single one, is intended for humanity's good, for his people's good and their flourishing. And the blessing, the Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing to God's people, to, to meet man's needs and bring him the blessings that he needed, not restrict his life and make him a kind of a rule-keeping robot. You even see this in God's heart in the wilderness when he provided for them manna and quail. He gave them excess the day before the Sabbath. He wants to provide for you in excess so that if you rest on the Sabbath, it's a blessing. His intent is to bless. So Jesus is kind of revealing the true intent of the law by showing this precedent set by David. But then Jesus also just flat out claims his own authority to determine what's right for Sabbath behavior because of who he is which is where I would have started. <laughs> his, he just quotes his authority over it. He's Lord of the Sabbath, right? This is like the, the dad, because I said so. This is an astounding claim. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus says. I'm the owner of the Sabbath. I'm the master of the Sabbath. I can say what's permissible and what's not. In John 5, 9 through 18, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath who'd been an invalid for 38 years. You remember the man couldn't get into the pool of Siloam because he couldn't move. He was an invalid. And he couldn't get healing. And he'd been there for 38 years. And Jesus heals him. He says, rise up, take your bed and walk. And then the Pharisees saw the man. They accused him. Hey, you're working on the Sabbath. You're carrying your bed and walking. <laughs> He's been an invalid for 38 years. <laughs> And now you're getting on to him for carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And they said, who, you know, who, he tells them, well, this man told me to do this and I'm doing it. Said, well, who was it? Well, they find out it was Jesus. And they go find Jesus and confront him on it, on the Sabbath. And you get a little taste of his superiority here because Jesus just simply tells them, 
This is on the Sabbath, right? You're not supposed to work. My father's working until now, and I am working. In other words, look, we're going to do what we intend to do. Your religious scruples will not bear on my intent. The father who invented the Sabbath and the son who has equal authority with the father are permitted to work on the Sabbath. It's Jesus' work that will be finished on the cross and will bring us ultimate rest. Now, they're not understanding his work as the divine son of God who's come to seek and to save the lost. But he's saying he has a right to work on the Sabbath, his father's working, he is working. Now let's not misunderstand Jesus to be dismissive of the law or the Sabbath. He's not at all, but he's expressing God's intent for the Sabbath. And in himself, he'll fulfill all of its demands for us so that we can truly find rest, so that we can fully realize the blessing of the Sabbath in our own lives through Jesus. And so Jesus clarifies the intent of the law. He defends his disciples, but then we're going to see that in Jesus, we're, we're, we are restored. We find the restoration the Sabbath was meant to bring. We find it in Jesus because in his life, he fulfills the law on our behalf. Look at chapter three, verses one through six. Mark's going to provide us another Sabbath day activity of Jesus to illustrate what Jesus has been saying about the Sabbath. This is typical of Mark, right? Let Jesus's actions explain his identity and purpose. So chapter three, just read it one through six. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So this man with a withered hand is like a chess piece for both the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus is going to use this precious man with a withered hand to display his greatness and love strategically. And the Pharisees are going to use this poor man with a withered hand to try and trap Jesus. Jesus is going to affirm this man's humanity and clarify the intent of the Sabbath by his expression of love and care for this man. The Pharisees are just going to objectify this man and use his poor condition for their evil sin. I mean, the Pharisees are actually hoping Jesus will heal him so that they can accuse him. Doesn't sin just make you dumb? I say that as a warning <laughs> to my own heart and my own life. How upside down and twisted sin makes you. They were hoping he would heal the man so they could accuse Jesus. Jesus asked me, come here. Now, this had to be a bit embarrassing, perhaps shocking to this man. He's at the synagogue. He's just there, perhaps to worship today. He has a disability. How many of y'all like your disabilities to be on display? How many of you like to lead out with your short, you know, your brokenness? Nobody does. If you have a disability, you usually don't want the world to know. 
So Jesus calls this man out. He comes forward and he poses a question to the, to the Pharisees. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent because they knew the answer. It's a very loud silence. Where good needs to be done, neutrality is not an option. It's not just permissible to heal or do good on the Sabbath. It's right. It's necessary to do good on the Sabbath. As James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it's sin. And their hard hearts are keeping them from doing good and valuing life on the Sabbath. And here we see this righteous anger of our Lord because of their hard hearts. He's grieved, afflicted by their own self-injury, their own unwillingness to see who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so Jesus displays what is good and right and what's permissible on the Sabbath because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, stretch out your hand. Now, this is a moment, and I want you to try to identify with this man with a withered hand. Stretch out your hand. In other words, expose to me your weakness. Show me your brokenness. Open up yourself to me right now in this moment publicly. And the man stretches his hand out. And Jesus restores it. Here's the intent of the Sabbath. Restoration. That only comes from Jesus. It only comes from Him when we go to Him with our brokenness. With our weariness. With our sickness. With our sin. Only Jesus could restore this man to the joyful condition where he could truly enjoy the Sabbath as a blessing. He, Jesus alone gives the grace we need to enter into the joys of obedience. I mean, if his hand is restored, remember you work six days, seventh day rest. If you work hard, it sure helps to have two hands. And his hands are restored, which means his capacity for work has now greatly increased. So he would now be free to work hard Six days and rest on the Sabbath. I've always found it interesting that Sabbatarians don't also work six days. It's just a, something to throw out there for you. But the Sabbath was best enjoyed after six days of hard work. And here Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, which restores his capacity to work, which then would allow him to fully rest and enjoy the rest God intends on the Sabbath. But notice what Jesus doesn't do then. He doesn't say, now go honor the Sabbath laws. He didn't tell his disciples to stop picking the grain. And in other places when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, people get up and go to work. Peter's mother-in-law. Or he sends them away. He says, go and sin no more. He doesn't point them back to the Sabbath laws. And that's because, as Brandon mentioned last week, he's flipping the script. He's ushering in a new law. In himself, in the new covenant. He's ushering in a new life for us to live out of and new laws that reflect the goodness of God and his love. So Jesus is not dismissive of the Old Testament law. He's dismissive of false interpretations. He's dismissive of excessive religious demands that have been heaped on top of it and made a blessing unto a burden. But Jesus, the New Testament teaches us that under Jesus Christ, he has ushered in a new law, a new priesthood, has a new 
law attached to it. And when Christ came, that purpose that he came to fulfill the old law was successful. And the purpose that the law served, which was to inform us of God's character and awaken us to our sin and to set apart a nation unto himself had been fulfilled. And then there was a hunger and a need for this Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who then ushers in a new covenant with a new law. So we're no longer than under the Sabbath law. We're under grace. We're under the new covenant law. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what are we to do then with the Sabbath? Well, we honor the Sabbath when we recognize Jesus fulfilled every Sabbath demand and every law demand for us. And we enter into faith, we enter into rest, we enter into Jesus Christ through union with him and receive the rest that he provides. So you, you daily do what this man did on the Sabbath, which is you daily open yourselves up to him. You daily extend your withered hand, your, your brokenness, your weakness. You daily extend your sinfulness, whatever it is that you're struggling with. You daily open yourself up to him and Jesus restores. Jesus alone can restore us now. So we come to Jesus like the man's withered hand, showing him your greatest need and you enter into the rest that he alone can provide. Rest, rest in your Savior Jesus who defends you. There's no condemnation. And understand that Jesus intends this law to be a blessing, his word to be a blessing. And receive the restoration that is yours in Christ Jesus. In so doing, you will honor the Sabbath. And in so doing, you'll enjoy rest now and you will someday enter into an eternal rest with our God and our Savior. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to send your son, Christ Jesus, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Father, thank you for working, Jesus. Thank you for working until your work was done. Your work was completed so that we might find true and lasting rest in you, Lord Jesus. Pray that we will open up our hearts to you. We'll open up our brokenness to you, that in our, in our sinfulness and our weakness, Lord, we will come to you and find true and lasting rest because of what you can provide, Lord Jesus, in forgiving us of our sins, empowering us by your spirit, and enabling us to live out the works that you've prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. We ask that you'll now turn our hearts to praise you in spirit and in truth and magnify your name. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.